Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are working through the book of John. Well, we're going back in the book of John, I guess. John 10, verses 22 through 30. Remember how John has kind of come into our Lucan year, and uh, it continues during Eastertide. So take it away. Tell us where we're at. Yeah, so, you know, we, we've, saw, we've seen before that the Revised Common Lectionary in these sections of John's Gospel often just kind of lifts something out. And, and they, technically speaking, hasn't, they haven't exactly taken the lesson out of context today, but we do have to take into consideration the larger context of John chapter 10, the, mm-hmm. good, the good shepherd discourse that precedes it. And the, this lesson is part of a larger passage that continues through to the end of the chapter. So we'll also take a look at that as well. And I think if you've taken a peek at it here, you're going to feel that it, it seems kind of is really out of context. So Alan's going to put it into context. For, at least I did when I yeah. read it. I'm like, yeah. I have to go back right. and kind of put it where it was. Yeah. Um, you really need to read the whole chapter. I will say this. I think the whole good shepherd piece is such an important image for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, in the church I was growing up in, the one image we had, because it was a good Calvinist church, was of Jesus the good shepherd. Right, right. And so having that in mind, that may be part of why they included it here, just in terms of where this sits in the Eastern uh, Tide. You know, I think I think um, my, my theory about why they've included it here is, you know, as, as we've said before, the, the, the lectionary tries to work John in, place in, in, in during Eastertide. That's one of the places they try to work John into the three-year cycle. I, t- I tend to think that the reason why they work this passage in is because of the statement, I and the Father are one, in verse 30. I think they wanted to get that in, you know, yeah. during Eastertide. Uh, and, and that may be as that may be as well. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's, it is interesting. You want to kind of get into their minds mm-hmm. and, and figure out what were they thinking when they chose it. Sure. So anyway, um, that indeed is where we are at. So tell us a a little more about the context then. Yeah. So as we said before, John 10 begins with the good shepherd discourse and there Jesus uses several analogies related to the keeping of sheep to describe his relationship with those who believe in him. Uh, He says he is the shepherd whom the sheep follow because they know his voice. And he also identifies himself as the gate to the sheepfold, allowing the sheep to enter the safety of the pen. Mm -hmm. I think both metaphors convey the idea that those who believe in him find salvation and life. I think Mm -hmm. that's the point of those Mm -hmm. metaphors. And Jesus contrasts himself as the good shepherd with those who had come before him using imagery, I think, from Ezekiel 34. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw this last year when we looked at the good shepherd discourse there Ezekiel rebukes the shepherd of shepherds of Israel for abusing their position to benefit themselves leaving the people scattered and weak like sheep without mm-hmm. a shepherd as a result God promised I will set up over them one one shepherd my servant David and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd that's mm-hmm. Ezekiel 34:23 and I think this would be the specific backdrop for Jesus identification of himself as the good shepherd mm. and that he was contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the Jewish religious leaders whom he characterizes as hired hands in contrast mm-hmm. to them he would serve as the good shepherd by laying down his life for the sheep and we, mm. we, we dealt with that last year when we, when we looked at that passage in depth. You know, and I, I'm just, I'm going to ask this interesting question because I, I'm, I'm intrigued with the Ezekiel reference, obviously. Um, but, you know, my simpler mind goes to, or would this just be imagery they were familiar with? Because they were familiar with shepherds, they were familiar with sheep, or... or I mean, what draws you to, to specifically that, to go to Ezekiel? I, well, because the whole chapter is 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 a rebuke of the shepherds of Israel and and promises this idea that he will there will be a, a shepherd, my servant David, that will feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. I think that's where Jesus is thinking of the good shepherd, and I think I think the uh, Jewish religious leaders would have had enough biblical literacy that they would have heard the echoes mm-hmm. of Ezekiel thirty four in what Jesus was saying. And when 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 that adds in to this kind of simpler, <laughs> I, I, going back to my childish image, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it makes it much deeper passage, mm-hmm. actually, when, yeah. when you're taking and, and these leaders then have more reference directly to Well, and, and Jesus, you know, Jesus is chiding them 
in a mm-hmm. similar way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he chides them really more gently than Ezekiel does. Ezekiel rakes the shepherds right. over their coals, really, in Ezekiel 34. <laughs> and yet, what's in, well, but it's interesting, if they're familiar enough with it that they would be able to then recall that harsher treatment by Ezekiel. I think Ezekiel. they would have heard the resonances. Yeah, yeah that's, I think they would um, have. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you know, moving on then, what, what is the relationship um, uh, between the sheep and the shepherd? Yeah, and this is the other major theme here is that Jesus as the good shepherd has this relationship between him and the sheep. He says he knows those who are his own and they know him in the same way that Jesus and the Father know each other because they are his own. And um, this is the theme, I think, in this passage is that is that the sheep belong to him and to the father. And because they belong to him, um, they've been given to him by the father and they have this kind of close relationship similar to the relationship that Jesus and the father has. Mm-hmm. And this theme's going to come up again in our lesson for today. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, this is interesting, um, too, because it, it implies uh, that the sheep aren't really quite as free if you will, if there's an ownership of, I wouldn't see them. it. I wouldn't see it so much as in ownership as as so much as in the idea of knowing. They are known. Okay. And and they know him. He knows them. Okay. And that's the idea of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus knows the Father. The Father knows him. And so they share that kind of intimacy. Okay. That the Father with Jesus. That okay. the Father that Jesus shares with the Father. I think that's an important distinction. I'm glad mm-hmm. that you pointed that yeah. out because I think um, that. In my mind, that provides a different relationship mm-hmm. than ownership, Belonging, per se. Belonging, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So moving on, um, this, they tell us all about at the beginning of this, these specifics. Right. As when it starts. Yeah. When is this going Our on? lesson to, for today begins with the notice that at the time, at that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And again, in my mind, I hear these details reflecting the tendency of John's gospel to specify times and places. Oh, yes. But you know, people make a big deal out of that. You know, why is Jesus walking in the portico? And why is, <laughs> well, you know. Because it was a public place and it was a place, it was a gathering space. But and, Why and isn't the, he the sitting temple. at the portico? You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff some of the reformers <laughs> right, start to ask right, about, right. right? So, but I right. love the detail. I, sure, it's fun. So, the festival of dedication you may not recognize, but it's what we know as Hanukkah, and the, that, this festival uh, originated as the celebration of the reconsecration of the temple by Judah Hamakabi or Judas Maccabeus in 164. BCE after it had been desecrated by the army of the Hellenistic ruler Antiochus IV. And it typically occurs sometime in December. And mm-hmm. we, we know of it because it happens sometime around Christmas. Right. And we most of us don't really know much more about the fact that much more about Hanukkah than the fact that uh, it's a festival of light and it happens around Christmas. Right, right. Now, Solomon's portico was a covered colonnaded walkway or porch along the eastern wall of the temple in the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the women. So mm-hmm. it was a place where all right. people could gather. Right. And, and we'll, we'll, we, you know, if, we looked, if we looked further, we'd see in Acts that the early church was gathering for worship in, in this place. Mm-hmm. So um, it, was a, it was just a gathering place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the, uh, the reformers, when they talk about this, also identify this as a public Mm-hmm. a public space right. so right. and and that that may be important well it, you know that this wasn't done just to jewish leaders that were mm-hmm. somewhere somewhere restricted that this sure. was in front of others sure okay and so then we begin this whole discussion what what happens now well the lesson raises here once again a theme that really pervades the Gospel of John. And this is the, the Jewish leaders' debate about who Jesus was. We find it in John chapter 5 when Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for an unnamed festival and healed mm-hmm. a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. We find it in John chapter 6 after Jesus fed the multitude in connection with his declaration that I am the bread of life. Mm-hmm. We find it in John chapter 7 when Jesus went again to the Jer- Jerusalem for the festival of booths. We find it in John chapter 8 in connection with the light of the world discourse. Mm-hmm. And we find it in John chapter 10, 19, just prior to the beginning of our lesson, 
when, um, uh, where we learn that the Jewish leaders were divided because of the Good Shepherd discourse. And much of the debate in all of these chapters, there, there are seg- whole segments of these chapters mm-hmm. where, where the, the Jewish leaders are debating Jesus' claims about his relationship with God, which offended many of them, mm, obviously. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, in John 5, 18, they, they were, they were uh, it says that they were offended because he called God his own father. Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. John six fifty seven, you know, he says, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. And we know that they were offended by that statement right, as well. Right, right, right. Uh, John seven sixteen. my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Again, there's a mm-hmm. close connection here. And John eight fifty eight. before Abraham was, I am. You know, these are all statements that would have provoked right. the Jewish right. leaders to, to uh, be offended by, you know, Jesus is claiming right. an intimacy right. with God that was beyond what they could conceive. Right. And so this is in kind of that same context, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, um, as we move into this particular discussion, um, and then we see um, we see them ask right, Jesus, right? right. Yeah, in yeah. this context, this debate continues basically in John chapter ten, when John's gospel tells us that the Jewish leaders, and you know, the text says the Jews, but we need to recall here that the Jews in John typically refers to the Jewish religious leaders. Right. So the religious, the Jewish religious leaders asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And as before, when this debate has come up, Jesus answered them here, I have told you and you do not believe. Mm-hmm. And he says, the works I do in my father's name testify to me. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a theme that Jesus has addressed before in John's gospel, insisting that if they will not believe him and what he says about himself, they should believe because he is carrying out the works that the father has given him. And we see this in John 5, 31 to 38, especially 36 and 37, mm-hmm. where Jesus calls to witness for him the fo- the works that the father has given to me to accomplish mm-hmm. and the same thing also in john 8 much of the chapter uh, especially john eight eighteen, where he says that the father who sent me bears witness to him so this is a theme in in john's gospel that it, it's not just you know in one place he says john the baptist bears witness to right, me but right. i you know you know uh, one of the things they say is, you know, you, you, you're talking about yourself. You're bearing witness to yourself. Why should we believe you? And Jesus says, well, the works that the Father has right, given to me right. bear witness to me, and the Father himself bears right, witness to right. me. So, uh, what else do you need? And right. I find this kind of interesting because I, I feel like they, I, and maybe you can tell me, are they trying to trap him saying, I am Jesus, the Son of God, right in front of them? Is that what they want from him? Or are they, because how long do you keep it in suspense? What? I, think, I think it depends, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, we're still in that segment of the gospel where Jesus is in his public ministry, and we haven't yet gotten to the place where Caiaphas has made his sort of final declaration that it is better for one man to die than for us to lose the nation, basically, right. to paraphrasing there. Um, but, um, you know, there are some th- sprinkled throughout these chapters, there are some of the Jews who believe in him. So there right. are references that some of the Jewish leaders, apparently, and some of the Jewish religious leaders, maybe even b- believed in him and uh, maybe some of the people as well. And, and so, um, um, you know, I think there may have been some who were really anxious for him to say, are you know answer their question are you the messiah tell yeah, us specifically yeah. and and there may have been others i'm sure there were others who were simply using this right, to set him right. up to, to entrap yeah. him uh because you know there you know there were several times when they were going to either arrest him or stone him and they weren't able to do so because his time had not yet come well that Answer this question for me, because as I think about this passage and I think about this, you know, answer me. And, and he says, look, I've done that and what I'm doing. Is that in itself enough of an answer for these people? And this kind of reminder of, oh, yes, he's done all these things and therefore, oh, yes, I get it now or not. What do you think? Well, you know, apart from the dialogue with the woman at the well in Samaria in mm-hmm. John chapter four, where Jesus openly says, you know, I am he. Right, right. You know, there, there really is not an open declaration, I am the Messiah. Right, right. He, he, but he makes it very clear in other ways. I'm doing what the Father mm-hmm. sent me to do. Right, right. I'm saying what the Father sent me to say. You know, um, 
the part about, you know, the father lives and, and because the father lives, he's given life to me and I give life to whoever believes in me, you know, these kinds of things. They're very, I think he doesn't come right out and say explicitly, I am the Messiah, but he describes what he's doing in such a way that they should have been able to To catch on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, (laughs) I guess I'm asking, are these the are these the dumb religious leaders? You know, I, I, are they just trying to trap him or are some of them just the dumb religious leaders? I, I, do think, we know? I think some of them were just, I think they were dumbfounded because Jesus, as we've said many times, <laughs> he didn't follow the typical pattern right. of Messiah that they expected. Right, right. And so it was hard for some of them, I think, because they had all these preconceived notions. Right. And everybody, every Jewish person who believed was able to break through their preconceived belief system to be able to acknowledge, oh, this is different from what I was taught. Right. But yeah, this is yeah, the one. This is the one. Right. And, and and so, you know, I don't think we should be too hard on them. But, you know, there were there were some clearly, I think, who refused right. to believe I think, because, well, that makes because, sense. Right. because he didn't follow the pattern and because um, he was a threat to their power. You know, as mm-hmm. we saw in the mm-hmm. Synoptic Gospels, he threatened to under, undo all of the clean and unclean, which was the base basis for the whole power structure of the temple. And then more than that, um, you know, in John's Gospel particularly, but also in the Synoptic Gospels, he claims this this um, really unique intimacy right. with God the Father, right. which they couldn't handle because they believed that the Messiah would be a human figure. They did not see right, a Messiah right. as being a divine right, son of God. right, right. Yeah, you know, and I, as I think of myself, if I were a Jewish leader, I had all this. What I, you know, we always like to think, oh, of course I would believe. I, yeah. you know, that's 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 hard to say. What I what I have been able to. It's to, incredibly hard to to go against the grain of a belief system that you've been taught exactly. all of your life. I think that's a really important statement mm-hmm. right there. Yep. And <laughs> as much as I want to think. Oh yeah, sure. I believe. I don't know if I would. Yeah, I won't know if I would have been able to. I right? think that's an honest. I think that's an honest appraisal that we should all probably mm-hmm. be willing to admit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So moving on. Um, um, how what what happens now? How what has Jesus respond? Well, despite all that Jesus has done and said, the Jewish leaders persist in refusing to believe, according to John's gospel. And here Jesus says, "You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep." Now, of course, the reason for this is in what follows. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And again, this is the echo of -hmm. the Good Shepherd discourse that I was referring to before. You know, Jesus has this special relationship with his, those who believe Mm -hmm. in him, who are his sheep. Now, I I don't think, I don't think when he's saying here, you are not my sheep, he's, he's writing them off entirely though, because he still tries to, he still tries to convince them to believe. Right. And so, you know, here Jesus confronts the Jewish religious leaders with their refusal to listen to him. And by contrast, he returns to a theme in the Good Shepherd discourse that his sheep not only hear his voice, but also I know them and they follow me. And furthermore, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so here all the themes in John 10 related to the good shepherd and his sheep and the relationship Jesus mm-hmm. has with those who believe in him are summed up. Right. They have this relationship. They, the, the sheep receive eternal life and they are under his protection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, but I think this relates to Jesus, the question of Jesus' identity as well. And in the next verse, we'll see that Jesus goes on to point to the unity between what he and the father are doing. Yeah in terms of the sheep. Right, right. And this is actually really important part for the history of the church, this yeah. next part coming up, because this is so heavily used as, you'll, as, yeah. as we, as we um, um, to kind of define what this relationship is. And we sure. can talk more about that later, but Alan has some incredibly important nuance to share with us. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know this. that I would say it's incredibly important, but it does affect the translation of, of the text and particularly well, the New Revised Standard I'm gonna, Version. I'm going to push back. It is always important when we learn about the details of the text because most of us do not have the Greek background. And even if we can read the Greek, we're not, I mean, it, most of us just aren't going to get us, to this level of analysis. Most people don't know about textual criticism. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think this is actually really important because we take the English at such face value. Yeah. 
So you're, okay, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. <laughs> you're welcome. So in John ten twenty nine, Jesus proceeds to compare his protection of the sheep with the Father's protection. But there is a variant reading, actually, really what you would call a whole cluster of variant readings in this verse that has affected the English Bible trend mm-hmm. tradition. The majority of English Bibles follow the translation in the Revised Standard Version. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That makes sense, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. This differs from the new revised standard version. What my father has given me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Uh, That's also the translation of the Douay Rheims version, the, the good news translation and Wycliffe by the way. (laughs) So the difference here is based on a cluster of variants that are related to the gender of the relative pronoun and the adjective translated greater Mm -hmm. in the Greek manuscripts. So the critical text in modern times, including the most recent edition, uh, the Nessialon 28th edition, follows the reading of B or Vaticanus and some old Latin translations, and it supports the new Revised Standard Version. Mm-hmm. What my father has given me is greater than all. So the, the relative pronoun and the adjective greater are both neuter. Mm-hmm. So what is greater is what my father has given right. to me, right? Okay. yep. However, I have to say, relative pronouns are the bane of all languages. <laughs> oh, and yes, all you are. have to do is think about the typical buffoon in any sitcom and the way they bungle relative clauses, you right. know, and the way they talk. You know, it's 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 a it's almost it's almost a trope in our in our cultural vocabulary. It is. Right? It, yeah. It, yeah, it is, it is. So the sense of the passage However, and here, here's the thing, you know, we have the we have what may be the best witness to to the original text, but the sense of the passage seems to demand that John ten twenty nine is comparing Jesus' ability to protect the sheep with the Father's, and so mm-hmm. we have a reading of. Uh, Papyrus 66, which is an early and very important witness to John's gospel, and the majority of later manuscripts, um, which supports the translation of the Revised Standard Version and many others. Mm -hmm. The my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And here, both the pronoun and the adjective are changed to masculine to make the father the clear subject of the relative clause. That makes more sense when I read it It in in English, right? It makes more Mm -hmm. sense. It does. Now, this confusion, though, and and if you think about it, you know, you've got a relative pronoun and you've got an adjective and both of them could be either neuter or masculine. And you take all the variables and and there's a whole there's a total of four different renderings of this verse Mm. in the manuscript tradition. Um, And I'm not going to go into the details of that, but I will say this. It's likely that the reading followed by the critical text and the new Revised Standard Version is the original reading, because Mm -hmm. if not, it doesn't make sense the other way. It doesn't make sense. Well, it it doesn't. so, So one of the things that textual critics look for is, in, in trying to identify the most original reading, is the reading that best explains the origin of the others. So if it originally read, the, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, it, it makes no, there's no reason why that original masculine pronoun would have been changed to neuter, that which my father has given me is greater than all. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it seems clear that, and, and also another principle is the more difficult reading. And Clearly, that which my father has given me is greater than all is the more difficult reading. Yeah, it is. So, it is. so I think it's likely that the reading followed by the critical text of the Greek New Testament and the New Revised Standard Version is original. But, and this is a very important qualification, the sense of the passage clearly ports to the translation of the Revised Standard Version and the majority of English versions. If I'm using the New Revised Standard Version on this Sunday... And, and I'm, I'm reading the text or I'm printing the text, I'm going to use the reading that's in the margin. The New Revised Standard Version does have uh, a marginal footnote that important. gives okay. the alternate reading. Interesting. And okay. I, I'm going to use the alternate reading because the, the reading of the text really doesn't make much sense. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's you know, actually the church, kind of confusing. The church, the sheep that the Father has given to Jesus, they're not greater than all things. No. The Father no. is the one the who's greater than all greater things. The Father is greater than all things. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that makes a lot more sense. And I think as people are really tackling this, they're going to stumble over that. That's yeah. going to be awesome 
off. The new revised standard version is is a it is. I mean, I, I get I, I give them credit that they're following what is probably the original reading of the of the of the Bible there, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and and. <laughs> it's that reminder of human beings that wrote it down. Well, to, to some maybe extent. even in the composition, you know, right. you know, I mean, things like this, relative clauses like this are stumbling points for all of us. Oh, right? abs- absolutely. Even the best of us have stumbled on relative clauses. Ab- <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, even you in catch, English. <laughs> catch yourself and you're like, ah, that didn't come out how my brain thought that should be when I'm writing. Well, and you got to think too, if the original, if the original um, author, or even even the editors of the final version of John's Gospel were originally Hebrew speakers, right. and they're writing in Greek, how easy is it? To, mm. to to confuse uh, the gender of a pronoun in a language oh. that's not your original absolutely. language. <laughs> a- well, absolutely, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> anyone that's taken any language knows right. that. And most yeah. of us wonder when we first dive into whatever French or German we do, why we have to remember <laughs> der, <laughs> der didas, didas along right? with, the, with the noun. <laughs> right. And this is why. This is you know, why. And, uh, yep. and, uh, I, I taught my Greek students to learn the definite yeah. article with the most, noun I think most in order do. to be able to have yeah. a better grasp on the yeah. gender of the, of the word. Yeah, because it's grammatical do. gender. It's not natural gender. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, the bottom line for that is if you use the Neurovi standard version, um, you know, I would use the footnote um, translation on this as as opposed to what's in the text. Mm -hmm. If you're using the NIV or one of these other translations that probably the vast majority of translations, you you don't have anything to worry about. (laughs) Right. Well, and, you know, you never know. Maybe it's a time to just select one of those other ones and say, I'm going to read this out of the NIV today. You can. You know, some... I have done this, though. I have have taken the the New Revised Standard Version and substituted the reading, what's in the text, for the margin based on my understanding of textual criticism. Well, and that works just fine, right? And since now you all know why, in case Mm -hmm. someone would come ask you why you chose it, you could say... Well, I learned on this wonderful podcast <laughs> that, <laughs> and this is why, and so you can be really smart in your intellectual answer and yet um, really help them with, with some of the challenges that the Bible has right. and, and the challenges of, 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 of that everything has is like written in some kind of English perfection, which I, I realize we, we giggle well, about, but we hear that you know, sometimes. The King James Bible was handed down from heaven, Ex- perfect, just as it is, right? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of thing. That doesn't work. Okay, so how does this lesson conclude? Which, by the way, I think concludes kind of abruptly. It I think does. it could go on to the next It should section. go on, really, I yeah. would say. So the lesson concludes with the boldest declaration by Jesus of his, father, of his relationship with the Father to, at this point in John's Gospel. The Father and I are one in John 10, 20. And I do think it's important to note here that Jesus said he and the Father are one using the neuter gender of the pronoun, hen, one, mm-hmm. signifying that they are united in purpose and action, not the masculine gender of the pronoun, heis, which would signify that they are one person, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, we see, this, we see this in John's gospel. This is the way John, Jesus speaks about his oneness with the Father. Mm-hmm. He doesn't speak of himself as being the same person as God. He speaks of right. himself as having a unity of purpose and action. Mm-hmm. A- and basically... You know, I realize that I'm sure many people will go to this as a proof text Mm -hmm. for the idea of Jesus being of the same substance with the Father, the homoousios of the same substance in the Nicene Creed. But that's not what this passage is affirming. Right. And it, it, it has, you know, we'll learn here in the history, it has been used like right. that by historian, by, by the reformers too. But um, yeah, this is not the text for it. No, right? no, this is not, this right. is not what, this is not what's going on here. Okay. And so e- even at that, however, this declaration by Jesus of such a close relationship with God provoked the Jewish religious leaders to try to stone him to death. 
for, for blasphemy, basically. Uh, and Jesus confronts them. Why I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? In verse 32. And, and again, they reply by charging him with blasphemy. And he responds by questioning why they are saying that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world was blaspheming because he said, I am God's son. I think all of this kind of fills out the meaning of what Jesus means when he says, I and the Father are mm-hmm. one, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, it's clear, I think, that Jesus is not claiming equality with God here, but rather he is that he is the one whom God has chosen to speak his words and carry out his works. Mm-hmm. He is the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, and it's on this basis that he challenges them to believe in verses 37 and 38. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works. So here, mm-hmm. I mean, we're late in the game in John's account of Jesus' public ministry. We're late in the game here. There have been several interactions right like this between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And he's still challenging them to believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am Mm -hmm, in the father. mm -hmm. And that was something they just couldn't grasp. They couldn't, they couldn't grasp because their belief system had no, there was no place in the Jewish faith Mm -hmm. system for, for that kind of relationship between a human being and, and God. Right. Right. It's really, um, I, I think of so many possibilities going on here, but yeah, this is really a stretch yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. But but this whole this whole as, this whole presentation of Jesus' relationship with God is consistent with the theology of God, John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Jesus shares an intimacy with the Father so that he can say that he only says what the Father tells him to say, and that he only does what the Father tells him to do. But I will insist John's gospel does not does not yet go to the point where later theologians did in explaining the persons mm. the person of Christ. Okay. And it, I'm not saying I'm against that. I'm just saying that John, John wasn't there yet. Go there. I you know what's interesting here is I'm thinking about John writing this right. So I'm kind of going away from from Jesus's interaction, but away from the the authorship and thinking about how this is being presented to us as readers and. And finding this such an important dialogue for those of us that are reading to learn who Christ is. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that strikes me as interesting about this discussion. Well, and I mean, you think about it, you know, John, the, the beloved disciple, if he's the one who is the original witness behind the gospel, he would have been a Jewish Christian. Perhaps um, his circle of disciples who were the we who put the gospel yeah. in their fi- in its final form. Right. Perhaps they, um, um, perhaps they may have been Jewish Christians mm-hmm. also, right, right. and they all had to somehow come to the place where they were able to get beyond their belief system right. and right. be able to see, yeah. yeah, Jesus truly does have this special relationship with God, and they yeah. were able to accept it. And 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 as as, as John's gospel tells us, there were other Jewish perhaps other Jewish religious leaders, other Jewish people who believed in him. Right, right. So they were able to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I mean, in a way, it's really awesome when, when you think of it in, in, that, in, that, in that way because it kind of gives you this aha moment yourself, perhaps mm-hmm. digging into John. You yeah, know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole paradigmatic shift, I guess, in it how is. you understand For them. the world. Absolutely. For them. It, yeah. was, it would have been a whole paradigm shift. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Hi friends, we're back and we're going to take a look at what the Reformers had to say about this passage and we're going to find some interesting uh, dialogue around this text. So uh, Christy, uh, take it away. Yeah, thank you. You know, for what is really a pretty short text, there was a lot of conversation going on uh, about this passage. So I thought that was interesting. And of course, they recognize, like we did, that this is kind of just taken out of the broader context of the of John ten. But um, anyway, still, we'll we'll stick to to what we have today but of course they're going to make big deal about everything that is written and so they well i mean that's the theological exegesis that that had been practiced by the church for centuries right so we i mean i i kind of chide them about it sometimes and get and chuckle about them but you know it's it's kind of like expecting the 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 jewish religious leaders to to change their belief system all all of a sudden you know um, it's obvious that that's why that, that they still do some of these things they they read read their theology into certain passages. right yeah. right so of course they're going to make a big deal about the feast and um, um, and recognize that it, and, and when it when it was set and Solomon's porch and um, 
and without going into all the details, what I really loved about one of the um, commentators was Caspar Kreuziger. And he, he says, look, um, th- they recognize it was a feast of dedication, uh, f- Jewish holiday, but they don't, they push beyond that. And they, they say, well, but this really recognized the true temple that was Jesus. And therefore all this happened because <laughs> Jesus was the true temple. So they really pushed it. <laughs> and then Casper actually said, and we should celebrate this dedication with Christ to protect the true temple against the advancing Turkish threat, threat and the other kings in uproar. Wow. Which I actually kind of loved <laughs> the historian in me because it was a real fear. It of was people. a fear. And so, uh, yeah. The advancing Turkish threat was something real to the it reformers. Was, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, and they did the same thing with Solomon's porch and, and Wolf, Wolfgang Musculus, we've met him before. He's like, look, it's, it's significant that it's on the porch and it took place out, outside where the common folk are and that Christ was walking. And so he makes a big deal about this. And the temple inside re- represented the cold interior of Mosaic law and human traditions. <laughs> and again, they, they, they really push the meaning of this detail. Yeah. But it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think... As we move into the passage, we get some more kind of sophisticated kind of work being done. And, and really that this passage is central to the Reformed doctrine of election. And um, the center point here is that Jesus showed his through identity through action, which is what we saw. Um, and it's clear that Jesus does not need to give vocal affirmation of his being. Um, those Jewish leaders do not believe. Um, and Calvin, Calvin actually goes out of his way to indicate that these words of Jesus seem really harsh. And, you know, I think, I don't know that I've read it particularly hearing that, but yeah. Calvin well, I mean, definitely did. I mean, you know, you're not my sheep. You, you don't believe me because you you're not my yeah, sheep. That's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty intense. <laughs> but, you know, he said, look, Calvin's harsh because they continue to refuse to believe him, to um, Jesus, even though they have seen his works. And, Ultimately, get, this gets placed into an understanding that these folks must be the reprobate um, beyond saving. Mm. And after all, their hearts will not change even though Christ's identity is clear. And, of course, this gets a little sticky for who are those sheep of another fold. Yeah, and that's referencing the earlier passage. Right, the, the Good Shepherd discourse. Mm-hmm. He, Jesus speaks about the sheep of another right. fold. And, and, so, and they, they will be brought together because there will be one right. sheep, one, one fold and one shepherd. Yeah, exactly. And they, they seem to see some distinction from those who believe now, those who have not heard the word of God, who will believe later, and those who refuse to believe. So if you've heard the word of God and you haven't yet believed, you must be in the third category of those who refuse to yeah. believe. Wow. Yeah. It, so it, it, and, and that's kind of where it, it, it seems to evolve to. Um, and yet, reading other parts of Calvin, I think he still has this kind of hope that they'll hear and believe. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite as grim as it as it later makes itself out to I, be. I kind of think, though, when you look at sort of the popular view of predestination and election, that's kind of how it yeah, goes. Exactly. I mean, you either are those who believe now, or you're those who haven't heard the word of God yet and right. have not yet believed. And though, Or if you've heard the word of God and you haven't believed, you've refused to believe and you're reprobate yeah. and you, you, you basically are beyond saving. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Now... I think um, one of the things is that when we, we um, talk about the reprobate is that we always assume this is Calvin. And this is actually part of a much broader religious debate that emerged before Calvin. Um, and uh, I found it throughout, um, particularly through um, M- Musculus again. Um, and I mentioned he was a secretary to Martin Bootser. So, um, and he kind of was in that Swiss camp, but he also was interacting with the Lutheran camp. And I, I want to quote some of the things he says. He says, we see that those who do not belong to Christ are not able to believe in Christ. And yet he does note that it's still interesting that Jesus preaches it to them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it, and I think you kind of alluded I to did. that as well. It's, yeah. it's Even late in the game, he continues to challenge yeah, them to believe yeah. in because of the works that he's doing. Exactly. And I don't think reformers have a very good explanation for that. They claim that the truth must be present for all human beings, yet not, yet not giving them any excuse why those who don't believe should be damned. 
and I see it as a problem. Um, yet when we look at the world around them, see what they believe is the obvious truth of the scripture, they can't explain the unbelievers. Yeah, it's something that I it's really fa- I find fascinating. You've mentioned that several times that that Luther and even Calvin they both just felt like all you had to do was get the word out and people would believe. Yeah. And when that didn't happen, they couldn't ha- they couldn't yeah. really explain why would someone not believe. And therefore. They must be damned. I mean, and that's yeah. kind of the conclusion that it comes to. And that's, um, I think, I think it really reflects our, when we look at our modern worldview and we, we have, we've been introduced to other kind of concepts of truth. And I think we understand how people don't believe right. a little better. Right. Um, we have more space for those who don't believe. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't believe. Exactly. And, and some of them have to do with the way the church uh, behaves. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it's a very different space to them. It, it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. It, it is the it is the worldview. It's the big T truth of which that everybody must believe. And, um, they, and to their defense, they don't really have any... I mean, their knowledge of Islam is actually pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Um, their knowledge of any of Eastern kind of faith right. traditions are almost non-existent. Right. So you know, they, they, those are heathen that can be that can be uh, um, eventually introduced to the word. They'll believe, and of uh. course, that then is going to spur on. You know, as soon as we get the over, we're right in the middle of kind of. Um, the wave one of, if you will, of, of overseas discovery and expansion. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we hit the 18th century, we start getting the huge mis- missionary pushes. Sure. If only these people believe, they only if they hear, could only hear, they would believe. Then they're going to believe. Right. And of course we know that's not what happened with yeah. those missionary things. Yeah. So I, I, it's kind of an important piece in our kind of intellectual development to move to then a modern worldview where we are a little bit more understanding that there's other traditions out there, although not everybody would agree with that. We know. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, we I know. still have groups yeah. out there that are just convinced. You're either you those who believe now or you're those who have not heard the word of God yep. who will believe later right. or you're those who refuse or to believe damned. and you're rep- yep. reprobate. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, um, I want to mention this. This is something that I heard yesterday and we might want to talk about this later, but my son... Uh, I don't know exactly what he was listening to, but I walked by and I heard this comment of, oh, those Christians, they're just, you know, they're just really think they're better than everybody else. And I was kind of shocked. I don't exactly know what it was. And I'm like, oh, that's not true. But I think there was a sense here of that big T truth that mm-hmm. this is the only truth. Mm-hmm. And Nothing else out there matters, right. and and therefore that's how this reputation emerged that I he was so. dealing with. I so. think so. I mean, w- whenever whenever your truth is the big T truth, and there is no other truth mm-hmm. besides that, you know, it, it it really. I mean, it's kind of an arrogance. It's mm-hmm. kind of a you know. You, I mean, that's where the you, we're better than everybody else comes right. along because we know and you don't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there exactly. is a kind of, there is, I mean, I have experienced a kind of spiritual condescension, you know, a kind of spiritual arrogance on the part of some of those people. You can almost see it in their faces and in the way they talk, you know, mm-hmm. they, they have this assumption that, oh, I'm in and I'm, I'm right. part of the, I'm right. part of the elect. And, and if you don't agree with me, then right. you're not. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's more pieces to that, um, which maybe we'll maybe we'll get a chance to talk about a little bit more. But I want to head back to our reformers now. Um and in particular this whole idea of predestination. And it they really do spend some time talking about how this doctrine is meant to be more as a comfort yeah. to believers. And we look at it as being such a rigid, harsh mm-hmm. truth. And um here the scripture reminds us that God has chosen us by grace. And that's one of the things that they push on. Um, there is really nothing you can do to remove yourself from this fold. You were elected to yeah. be here. And this is not just Calvin, but I, I gained, I have a couple others. I'm going to quote them. Johannes Brenz, a Lutheran reformer writes, quote, this text is a huge consolation for the afflicted. 
No, for matter what storm may befall the afflicted, if they have been made through faith sheep of God, then they have on their side the Father and the Son who are one and whose power has no evil. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I like that statement. I, I do too. I like it a lot. They have on their side the Father and the Son who are one and whose power has no equal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and when you're looking at predestination that way, that's yeah. comforting, right? Well, it's 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 kind of, it's more than comforting. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And Casper Kreutzinger again says, um, election, quote, should be treated not to bring in the stoic, bring in stoic fate, but to strengthen faith. It is a promise that strengthens us. Yeah. And then he kind of makes this universalist claim for it is for us, it is right, based on God's word, to think that all persons universally should be instructed to hear the Son of God. The promise of grace is universal, instructing all to receive it. And according to Kreutzinger, it is those who use their free will to reject God's free election mm. that are damned. So, let this passage strengthen the believers. Quote, let no one will seize them from my hand. To me, well, and that makes sense with the passage because that's what Jesus is saying, you know, right, about the sheep, right. you know. They I hold them in my hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father holds them is my father's greater than all. He holds them in his hand. No one can take them out of his hand. Yeah. And and that does make sense with this passage that they would emphasize the positive aspects of Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and uh, I think as modern readers we sometimes look at it in this kind of negative view, looking at those who are out and saying, no, and, and as you pointed out, he's still preaching mm. to these people. There's still this hope that they're mm. going to join and, 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 and fall into this faith. And so I think, I think it's the, our modern skepticism that, that's coming in, our, our, our this negative view instead of this hopeful view. I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I think and it's been true for a long time, you know, that um, we, we don't like ambiguity in our big T right. truth. Right, and And I mean, <laughs> if you look at life and you look at people and all the varieties of reasons why people believe and why they don't believe, you got to leave a lot of room or ambiguity in your big T mm -hmm. truth because yeah. um, you just can't you just can't ca categorize people into neat little categories like they tried to do you know it just doesn't work that way right right and right. so you know in my mind salvation is an ultimate thing and it's ultimately in God's hands and ultimately you know what people do in face to face with God or face to face with Christ with face to face with Christ is in is in God's hands and in Christ's hands and I trust God's grace and God's love you know right, to prevail right, and God's right. mercy to prevail exactly exactly yeah. um so then after all that Kreutzner offers a very astute analysis um in regard to predestination he says that chance is not why things happen and criticized um a, wor a world that does not have divine govern governance um, and second, he says that God should never be bound. We shouldn't bind yeah, Christ like to that. some kind of um, requirement that these mm -hmm. are saved and damned. And I like mm -hmm. that too. Um, and third, um, they should put on predestination a kind of eternal determination where God forces people to act whether mm. they want to or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, that doesn't That's sound. Problem. That doesn't sound very uh, savory. No, no, no. no. Um, he says this doctrine is about a merciful Father that deals with us kindly, and so when you think of predestination, it's a very different kind of imagery than maybe it has been. Um, maybe it has been um, painted yeah. in, in this current, even in our current time. Right. Yeah. Um, it is our job to respond to this help. Now. He is a Lutheran pastor that is going to be Luther. But what I, want, um, what I want everyone to see here is that this conversation about predestination is not new or unique to Calvin. And second, that there is a consensus that the idea of election is meant to comfort people, not scare them. Yeah. Um, but we are also hearing the birth pangs of the skeptics. And that uh, by making the idea that some are elect... Others are assuming that there are those who would be damned. Mm -hmm. And Calvin, as we know, heads more into this space because it is truly inconceivable how someone could resist irresistible grace <laughs> unless they weren't saved. Yeah. Um, it is a really tough intellectual puzzle. Yeah, it is. Um, I think we hear that debate within Calvin. 
we don't hear that debate within Calvinism mm -hmm. and when we go later. So mm -hmm. that's... Uh, At least Calvin is still open to the question. Calvin's still working with the question, mm -hmm. and we see that in Calvin. And, and people so often, and we've talked about this so much, but they so often tie Calvin to Calvinism mm -hmm. that happens later on that you really miss some of the nuance and some of the... Uh, and and some of the more benevolent um, kinds of feelings that come out of Calvin in his writing. Right. So, right. and finally, they use this, and Alan talked about this in his um, in his discussion. But was they use this to define the relationship between Father and Christ, and and many of them assume that this is just a support a support of. Um, of the Nicene Creed, mm. the um, homoousian um, father and son, but of the same substance, some of the yeah. same substance. Yeah. But Calvin actually claims <laughs> that the ancients used this passage incorrectly, um, and that this passage only alludes that Christ is in union with the will of God. It has nothing to do with the substance. Good for him. So ding, <laughs> ding, ding. Um, again, reminding us of this of this reformer that has had such an important influence on the church. He's really a, a very, very high-end scholar of that time. And I think that's why Calvin, Calvin is kind of so often referred to today. I mean, I think that's why we continue to go back to look at Calvin. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I have. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And in our little break here, Alan was telling me about this, this story or this visualization of heaven by one of his professors. And I thought, hold on, we need to talk about this in our next section. And because I think it really gives us um, kind of an interesting visualization for maybe what predestination might look like. Thanks, Krista. Yeah, so I went to I went to college at Howard Payne University, which is a little Texas Baptist college in West Texas. And West Texas is one of those places where you know the towns are maybe an hour apart, and every every town has to be self sufficient. People growing up on ranches there, they have to learn to be self sufficient. There's a lot of kind of rugged individualism, and in West Texas as probably many places like this, if you're not a straight shooter, if you're not somebody who's reliable and trustworthy, people have no use for you because, you know, they got to know who they can depend on in those kind of situations. So I had this professor. He was, his name was James Shields, and um, he had a crew cut in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> Never made more than $22,000 a year Jeez. teaching at Howard Payne University. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Anyway, um, um, and salt of the earth kind of fellow, kind of crusty a little bit, but just really, <laughs> I mean, he was a straight shooter. And if you were a straight shooter, he was okay with you. And, um, uh, um, you know, he did all of his theological training at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where I taught. He got his THD in, in theology. And, and um, but he, he had some theological acumen. Even though it was it was the acumen of a West Texas Baptist preacher boy <laughs> who became a theologian, you know, he had some theological acumen, and um, he taught us, you know, Baptist preacher boys in those days about predestination by using this image. He said, "Brothers," and that was the way he <laughs> talked. Brothers, <laughs> you know, when you when you're walking toward the gates of heaven, what you see written on the gates is whosoever will may come, which is a quotation from Revelation 20, Revelation okay. 20, 22, I believe it is. You know, whosoever will may come. But then when you walk through the gate, if you turn around on the other side, you see inscribed, chosen from before the foundation of the earth, which is a quotation from mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter mm -hmm. 1. Now, you know, that's kind of a simplistic approach to it, right? Uh, Karl Barth put a little more theological sophistication to it by saying that the one whom God chose before the foundation of the world was Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. and in him he chose us all. But it still, I think, brings out that idea that predestination is not meant to be this kind of arrogant assumption of, mm -hmm. I can tell who's saved and who's not saved, because right. the idea is everyone is welcome, whosoever will may come. Right. And right. once you respond, you realize 
God's grace chose you before the foundation right. of the world. You know, I think um, I think this kind of uh, determinist view of predestination and this kind of even ability for us to be able to judge based on who's in who's in church on Sunday and who's not, I, or I, even based on what you say you believe or say you don't. Well, believe, that's right? true, right? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think I think this is comfortable for us because it gives us an excuse for where evil comes from. It, it says, "Oh, well." you know, obviously they belong to the devil and therefore they aren't saved or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's, it's really easy to write people off that way, sure. or I don't have to continue to, to reach out to them. They are, they're done. And I, I think it, I think it, I think it's easy and it's, 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 and then it's, it's um, it, it kind of falls into our own nature to judge too. Well, and, and that kind of cert- certainty allows you to have your big T truth belief system all nice and neatly Mm -hmm. wrapped in, wrapped up in a neat little package where you understand everything. There's no ambiguity. Right. And you get to just smugly sail through your life knowing that, you know, and if other people don't know, well, they're just, they're just condemned. They're just not saved. Right. They're just not saved. You know, and then that's where I think my son's, um, thing I, I wish i remember knew what it was you know of you know gosh christians are just really you know they're they're really full of themselves they, they think, think they're, they're better, better than, than other people well. and um well, i i mean I've, I've seen that kind of arrogance you know you can almost see it on their faces you can mm-hmm. hear it in their tone in the tone of their voices and it's mm-hmm. it's really pretty offensive to me it is well and as i was listening to my son's thing and i he was not in the mood to have the discussion that i wanted to have afterwards i thought you know honestly if that's where we're at we're 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 having it all backwards because we really should feel less than everybody else um well, I don't and know that we have to feel less than everybody maybe else, not but, less than, but I but think I think the whole point. I mean, we we're recording this right after Monday, Thursday, right, and the whole right. point is, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Right. You know, I've served you in this in right. this humble thing of but washing the humility, your humility. I guess is yeah. what I'm after. Is, yeah. it, is that we should be in this in this space of humility, absolutely, of, of recognizing the value of our fellow human beings, um, and and reaching out in love and kindness instead of in some kind of a. And, well, that arrogant assumption that I know right. what's true. You know, it reminded, and I, I got thinking about this in terms of, so what does this mean in terms of our witness? And I uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was resetting um, my, uh, my mother's diamond the other day along with um, my grandmother's diamond. I have one from each grandmother. And so I, the, the, the people setting them were, were lovely, but they, they aren't church folks. And I was explaining that I'm a minister and, 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 and he said, Oh, Roman Catholic. And I, I winked at him. I said, well, <laughs> they haven't really had invited women into that role yet. <laughs> but you know, as it, it, it occurred to me there, it seemed like, so how do you witness then? Mm-hmm. Do you start saying, you should come to church and you should, and I thought, no, you know, that's not the right space, but the right space is to, and say, I, mean, I love my job and I'm, I'm really, um, you know, just to have a conversation church and just as normal conversation yeah. and, and nice banter. And I thought that was really good witness, but there would have been people said, oh, you missed your opportunity to share the gospel and. I think that would have been um, absolutely the wrong space. You have to build up a relationship with someone before you know, and, and allow them to have the conversation. Exactly. Ask to ask to ask. Exactly. You. I think that's the it is yeah. that asking question. I think I've told the story before that um, um, when I lived in Houston, when I had a friend who was an atheist and. Uh, but yet, you know, they were some of my wife's best friends. And so we saw them all the time mm-hmm. and, and I never brought up religion, but he always wanted to talk religion with me. And so I would talk about it with him. And it was probably four or five years into all of this process before, you know, he kind of asked me, well, what do you believe? And I shared with him basically what my faith was. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't really believe that. And I said, oh, really? Tell me what you believe, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he was, he was more into just kind of compassion in general and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, I told him, well, I think you're a Buddhist, and if somebody tries to come along and convert you, just tell them that that I said you were you were a Buddhist. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but I can say that in the confidence that that you know, God chose Christ before the foundation of the world, right. and in choosing Christ, He chose 
everyone, including mm-hmm. this fellow. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and yeah. so I, I, I have, I'm, I'm not afraid for his eternal destiny because, I, you know, he's in God's hands. I think, you use this word afraid for him, I think some of these folks, they're just afraid of other belief systems that don't match because their own. Because they threaten their big T truth. Because they threaten their big T right. truth. Uh, you know, I taught hermeneutics at the seminary, and the textbook that I use spoke about a hermeneutics of humility. In other words, oh, you, yeah. when you're interpreting the Bible or any other text, you recognize, well, this is this is my understanding to the best of my ability. Right, right. right. But I think that needs to go to our belief systems, our worldviews, all of that. This is my understanding of the truth to the best of my ability. Right, and and right. if we can have that that to the best of my ability part in there, it allows us to recognize mm-hmm. I don't have it all down. Right, right, There's a right. lot of things I don't understand. And right. and you know, the eternal fate of every person on, on the planet, I don't I don't pretend to know that. Right, right. I was I was I was sharing with Christy something that I had I had run across. So um inter- Zondervan, uh, which is an evangelical publishing house, has a series of books on four views or five views, and they they basically gather different people um, uh, from different spectrums. Um, let's see, there's five views on law and gospel, five views of sanctification, four views on eternal security, four views on hell, four views on the book of Revelation, um, these kinds of things. And I have four views on salvation in a pluralistic world. And so the, the views basically are a pluralist view, mm-hmm. and this is represented by John Hick. John Hick was a British philosopher, uh, theologian, who, who represented the idea of universal salvation, mm-hmm. basically. An inclusivist view by Clark Pennock. Uh, and his view is more of the idea, I think, that what we see in the PCUSA, you know, that we see Christ as the Savior, and while we recognize the legitimacy of all, you know, uh, of other religious beliefs, nevertheless, we see in the end Christ as being the Savior for all. They might not appreciate the fact that we include them under the umbrella of our salvation right now, but that's kind of mm-hmm. the way we, we view it. Mm-hmm. And then Alistair McGrath represents a, a particularist view which is that there are only certain ones, maybe not necessarily the chosen, but there are only certain ones mm-hmm. will be saved, not everyone. And then there is a, um, a different point of view that is more, um, even more restrictive, that is also mm-hmm. a particularist view, but it's even more restrictive because the, the, the one that Alistair McGrath presents leaves some room open, and, and the, the others are Douglas Guyvet and Gary Phillips. They have an even more restrictive view. And in one of their responses, in their response, you know, um, Alistair McGrath lays out a particularist view that, you know, probably most of us in the Presbyterian Church might find kind of offensive, although he does it in a way that is as non-offensive as possible. And so the way this book is constructed is that everybody has a, respo- has a chance to respond mm-hmm. to everybody's statement position. And so um, Douglas Guyvet and Gary Phillips are writing together, and they responded to McGrath's definition of his view of what what salvation from a particular point of view that not everyone will be saved looks like, mm-hmm. which is probably a lot more generous than maybe we might suspect. Mm-hmm. But they say this, that, that basically they assumed that um, God might justly withhold salvation from all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, whether or not they have heard the gospel. For God might have arranged for all those who would believe, if they had the opportunity to hear the gospel, to actually hear. If that is the case, then anyone who dies without hearing the good news is a person who would not have believed had, they, had he heard. And, and you know... To me, that represents wow. that kind of almost arrogant, smug, yeah. big yeah. T truth where I've got it all down. And so right. that I can, I can even presume to say that someone who has died without ever hearing the gospel right. is not saved because they would not, have, they would not have believed even if they had heard it. And God knew that. And so right. God allowed them to die without hearing, <gasps> hearing the gospel. Is, wow. uh, that is just that that just offends me to yeah, my core really, of my being. It, it really, really does. And 
yeah, but I've heard that. I've heard that kind of position yeah. before, you know. Yeah. And in fact, I remember a debate I had with somebody way back. I think I was still in high school, and I said, "Well, what you know? What if somebody never hears? I mean, it was that. Is this exactly? What if they mm-hmm. don't ever hear the word of? Well, they're obviously going to be damned, and they weren't ever meant to hear it. And I, holy moly, yeah, I was <laughs> right. ready for that. Um, it was one of my first kind of experiences outside my own tradition, and it kind of frightened me a little mm-hmm. bit because I. I learned the variety of opinions out there, and um, uh, the well, it's it's shocking how casually people can exactly. just write off lives. Exactly, exactly. Human lives. They're just they're just not saved. They're not saved. They're and not important. They're not. It's it's like it it's it's not it's important like, to them. Yeah, and it, it begs the questions: Do they would they say those people are actually children of God? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Well, and <laughs> I'm not in that conversation, but yeah. I think that's a really as I said before. Point. I mean, I think I think your big T truth system, your belief system that you use to make sense out of the world. We all have them, right? right we all have right. a worldview. We all have a philosophy. We all have a, an interpretive grid that we use to understand everything. We have to have enough humility about it to be able to allow some ambiguity to be able to say, "I don't know. This is in God's hands." I, I, as you're as you're describing this, yeah, I, I think I think the big T truth is that the big T truth is this constantly evolving question mark that goes mm-hmm. around, this constantly pushing ideas, yes. and, well, and, and, and and interpretations, and as new things come in, and that's hard because it's a moving it's a moving target, right? <laughs> and and that's actually that's actually the title of the book that I used for my hermeneutics text was the hermeneutical spiral because oh. that's actually Ooh. the 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 method that this this fellow was yeah. advocating. You oh. know that as you yeah. as you move between the text and the modern world, you continually grow in your understanding of the text. But I think that's true for us all with yeah, our with absolutely. our big T truth is that we're all in this spiral of understanding in which we 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 hopefully continually grow, but that that will ever have it all down you know to me i think of the passage in isaiah 55 you know my ways are not your ways right right <laughs> and, right you know my ways are high much higher than your ways and so you know i leave i, I like it when when kreutziger says you know that that the whole point about about salvation is that you know even even the doctrine of of, of predestination is about a merciful father that deals with this kindly that's got mm-hmm. to be in there in the big t truth right yeah yeah <laughs> that's exactly. got to play a prominent role I in the big so. t truth I, yeah absolutely and i would say that's a at least a good starting point yeah. um yeah. yeah yeah so that could bring up a whole bunch of other questions about the starting point of theology. So I think that's a good place to stop today, but um, thank you. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.